Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Perhaps the most famous preacher of the 19th century is a man by the name of Phillips Brooks. Phillips Brooks um, began pastoring in Philadelphia not long after what he would consider a failed stint as a Latin professor. He was teaching Latin, and his students weren't putting in the work that he thought they should be putting in, so eventually he just gave up. He said, can't do any more of this. Um, and he decided to go to seminary. He became an Episcopal minister and was the pastor of Philadelphia's Holy Trinity Church. His church quickly grew because of the power of his preaching, because of the personality behind the preaching. In fact, he is the one who coined the phrase that preaching is communicating truth through personality. That is a maxim that has defined preaching now for the last 160 or so years. He was so famous that in 1865, he got the call in May to give the message at President Abraham Lincoln's funeral. He did this in the midst of six years of fast growth, difficulty of the Civil War, the pain of leading a church during that. And by the time it got to about 1965, 1966, he decided he needed a break. He went on sabbatical. And he didn't go on sabbatical to the next state over. He went halfway around the world. He decided he was going to spend his sabbatical in the Middle East. On December 24th, he found himself in Jerusalem, surrounded by people who were all enjoying their tourism and being in Jerusalem leading up to Christmas Day. And he needed to get out of there because he wasn't on sabbatical to hang out with a bunch of tourists. So he jumped on a horse, and when a bunch of people said, don't go out there because you're going to get robbed, he said, I'm going anyway, I have to get out. And he just rides for hours and hours and hours on Christmas Day through the Judean desert. And as evening began to dusk, he headed into Bethlehem. Bethlehem was this tiny little town. It's grown now because of tourism. But at the time, there was just a small church, and it was effectively untouched for the last 2,000 years. Still a tiny little village, a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And it was here that he was struck by the smallness of everything. Bethlehem was really no special place in the first century. It wasn't all that special in the 19th century either. There was a church that was erected not far from where Jesus was born, but other than that, it was effectively overlooked. But while he was there, he could hear coming from the church song after song after song extolling the birth of Jesus Christ. And he said that when he returned from sabbatical, that he had a strong singing in his soul that carried him through the next three years. 
and he struggled to explain to his congregation what he had experienced in Bethlehem. Every time he would talk about this incredible spiritual awakening, this enlivening that he experienced in Bethlehem, people just said, yeah, all right, pastor, that's nice. Even his right-hand man, someone who had become the Sunday school superintendent, who was the organist, who was really instrumental in helping this church grow to minister to thousands in the Philadelphia region, just kind of listened to Brooks say how incredible Bethlehem was and didn't give it a second thought. Okay, that's nice. I'm glad you had a good experience. Nobody got it. Nobody could understand what he was trying to communicate about that epiphany that he had in Bethlehem. A renewal of love and amazement that the God of the universe would send his son not to Jerusalem, not to Rome, but to the tiny town of Bethlehem. One night, as he was struggling to try and figure out how to communicate this Bethlehem experience, he sat down and he began to write a few stanzas. We're going to sing them later today. They go like this. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You can imagine that final line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, carry a special weight for Brooks, who had pastored through the Civil War, who had even delivered a funeral homily for the President of the United States, cut down by an assassin's bullet. The hopes and fears of all the years, the bloodshed, the turmoil, the wickedness of slavery having been met in Civil War, what Lincoln described as God's judgment for that peculiar institution. The hopes that now that the Union had been saved, that the nation could step into a period of reconstruction and a new life for a country that was barely 100 years old. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in Bethlehem tonight. Well, he wrote these words down and he gave them to his organist. He said, hey, I'd like us to sing this, so do me a favor and write this down. I'd like it to be sung on Christmas Eve. And so there he is, his organist, trying to figure it out. His name was Redner. And Redner kept trying to take these words and put them to majestic, beautiful, large pieces of music, worthy of the Savior Jesus Christ, a grand, great orchestral piece, and he kept banging his head against the wall. Nothing was coming. Could not figure out how to set this to music. And then one night, he woke up with a simple melody going through his head over and over and over again, just a few days before Christmas Eve. He sat himself down, and he put the lyrics to the music, and he presented a simple melody with simple words about a simple place presented it to Pastor Brooks, and Brooks loved it, and it was sung that year in 1868 for the very first time. By 1874, 
A man named William Huntington had published this in a little book called The Church Porch Music Collection. By that year in 1874, it was not just being sung in Brooks Church, but it was being sung in churches throughout Philadelphia. And by 1893, when Phyllis Brooks was gone, it had become one of the most beloved Christmas carols in the world. And the reason for this is not because of its grandeur, not because of its greatness, but because of its simplicity. A simple message about a small place where God did an earth-shattering thing. It's a song about smallness. It's not a song about greatness as we would define it, but it's a song about what God can do in the small places of our lives, in small lives, in small places. And I think that it is fitting that a small song about a small place would herald the greatest message that this world has ever known, that God gave his son for his people. He was born long ago in a tiny place called Bethlehem. That's what our passage is about today. It's Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. I'm going to read it for us first, and then I'll say a short prayer, and then I will have the verses on the screen behind me as I preach. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 3. When Herod, the king of the, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we consider together smallness, as we consider together that you meet us, that you sent your Son to meet us in, in small places, but in big ways. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts, encourage us, strengthen us, empower us. Would you give us ears that are able to hear and hearts that are willing to obey what you have for us in your word. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a story of earthly smallness contrasted with divine greatness. There's really two pieces to this story. It's not just earthly smallness and divine greatness. It's also a story here in Matthew of earthly greatness that betrays a demonic smallness. There is a battle going on in these verses, a literal battle between good and evil. And evil is given to us in Herod, king of the Jews. Good, of course, is presented to us in Christ, in Jesus who will also be called king of the Jews. It is a tale in many ways of two kings, of Herod the Great and of Jesus the Christ. Of Herod the Great and Jesus the Christ. And it, it all comes down to two cities as well, 
perhaps not as great as Dickens' cities of London and Paris, but two other cities, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the seat of power for the Jewish people. It is where Herod has his throne. Herod the Great is a great king. We're going to be talking about him in a little while here. Bethlehem is the former home of another great king, King David. King David's been gone for more than a thousand years now. This is a city with wonderful history, but is overlooked by so many because it's a has-been city. If anything, it's just an interesting historical marker. Hey, that's where King David was born. He ruled, though, in Jerusalem. The throne is in Jerusalem. That's the important place, and that's where Herod the Great lives. I want to start not at the beginning of our passage in verse 3, but with the prophecy that we're given in verse 6. It's a prophecy that comes from the prophet Micah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You're too little to be among the clans of Judah. If you read the prophet Micah, I read it again this week as I was preparing for the sermon. It's only seven chapters long. It's not a long read, but it is certainly a depressing read. This is a prophet who comes with words of judgment. He's warning that because of the sins of the kings, they are going to be sent into exile. Micah names three of the kings that he is serving under in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. What's interesting about that list is that Jotham and Hezekiah are considered good kings, kings that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But the prophecy doesn't seem to match the attitude of the good kings. There is, in the center there, another king named Ahaz. King Ahaz, we actually discussed him a couple weeks ago, is one of the most wicked kings in the entirety of the Old Testament. In fact, if you were to go uh, and look through the kings in the Chronicles and say, who were the worst kings that have ever lived in Jewish history? There'd really only be two contenders. One is Manasseh, and the other is Ahaz. Basically, all that Manasseh did was take what Ahaz had done and make it that much worse. Ahaz is known for sacrificing his own child in, in worship, burning him, not because Yahweh had called him to, burning him because Baal, the god that was being worshipped by the Assyrians, demanded it. Ahaz wanted to be like Assyria. He saw the power of Assyria, and the nation had seen the power of Assyria firsthand. The nation of Assyria had defeated previous kings. Syria was strong, great warriors, a strong government, a developed culture and religion. And Ahaz realized in his own wisdom, which was deeply flawed, of course, that the only way to defeat Assyria was to become like Assyria. And if their gods were empowering them to be great, then we needed to sacrifice and worship those same gods, even if it meant the death of our firstborn children. It was a horrific, 
horrific time in the nation of Israel. It was so bad that Ahaz oversaw effectively the destruction of the temple. He had the, the altar of the Lord removed, and in, in his place was put an altar according to Assyrian customs and religions. He had all of the furniture destroyed and taken apart and used to build shrines to false gods and placed in the temple. It is because of the sin of Ahaz and then his spiritual ancestor, Manasseh, it is because of their sins that God sends the people into exile. It is because of the violence that Ahaz participates in and that he encourages others to participate in, a bloodthirstiness that would even mean the death of children. It is because of that that God punishes the people of Israel and sends them off into exile, where they will be for at least 70 years. Ahaz is one of the wicked kings, and he is in the background of the Christmas story because two of the three prophecies, two of the three prophecies that are explicitly mentioned by Matthew in chapters 1 and 2 are given during the time of Ahaz. The first one is back in Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah gave this prophecy directly to Ahaz as a judgment, saying that when the virgin conceives, it will signal the end of Ahaz's power. In fact, not long after that child was born, Ahaz fell. He died, and someone else, Hezekiah, took his place, a righteous king in his place. This second prophecy here also takes place during a book that seems to be centered in the reign of Ahaz, it carries with it warnings to Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, of what will come. This prophet, Micah, was warning the people that judgment was coming because of the wickedness of her ruler. But in the midst of this wickedness, in the midst of the the pain and suffering caused by the rulers of Judah, there is this promise that from Bethlehem, which was overlooked too little, too little to be among the clans of Judah, that from this place that's considered too little, there will come a ruler who's coming forth as from old, from ancient days. Daniel will later pick up on this ancient days language and actually apply that term to God himself and call him the ancient of days. And with the ancient of days comes the Son of Man in Daniel. Who is the Son of Man but Jesus the Christ? You see, there is all kinds of Old Testament fulfillment happening here. But there's also direct condemnation of a bloodthirsty ruler who sits on the throne in Jerusalem. And Matthew is not just saying, hey, that's some interesting information about Ahaz. Matthew is saying you can go from Ahaz to Manasseh to Herod. Herod the Great did some pretty incredible things. He built great big things. In fact, you can still see some of the things that Herod built today in Jerusalem. If you go down the Via Della Rosa, there are a bunch of, of um, monasteries and nunneries that have been set up. But you can actually look through the floor of those because Jerusalem is built in layers. You can actually look through the floor and see 
some of the incredible things that Herod built during his day. Perhaps the most incredible thing he did was he tore down the temple that had been built during the day of Ezra and rebuilt it back to its original dimensions that Solomon had built it. And in fact, people say that this second temple, the temple of Herod, was even greater and more beautiful than the temple of Solomon. Bought him great, great goodwill with the people of Israel. Because now here is their place that they can come and they can sacrifice and they can worship. And it is a beautiful temple that reminds them of Solomon. But he's also very powerful. He's very powerful and he's very paranoid. The paranoia begins a few years before this event takes place. He's been given power by Rome, but that depends on how Rome feels about you in the time. And there are always people who, when you have power, want to take that power from you. And he had a wife who would regularly warn him about all of these potential pretenders to the throne. People like his brother, or his sons, or even her own mother. And when she would warn them, hey, these people want your throne, he would say, okay, that's good to know. And then he would have them killed. And throughout the final years of Herod's life, he would kill the vast majority of his family. And he would kill many, many who he was worried were insurgents, fomenting rebellion and revolution against him. By the time Herod dies in about 4 BC, which is when Jesus is about two years old, by the time he dies, he is so paranoid that people are terrified that any time he hears bad news, he will go off in a murderous rage. They're terrified. Which is why it's not a good thing when a bunch of magi from the Persian area of Iran come over and say, hey, we heard the good news. A king's been born. Well, that's news to Herod. He doesn't have any more kids coming. In fact, when he has them, he kills them so they can't have the throne. So when he hears from Magi, hey, congratulations, that's a warning, not just for Herod, but now everybody in Jerusalem is worried, what's he going to do this time? That's where our passage starts today. When Herod, heard, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, because they know this is not a king that handles bad news very well. He gets bad news, people die. And here's what he does. He assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and this is fascinating. He inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod is very clear on what's going on. He knows. There's a star that's shown up in the sky. Magi from the east, the nations are coming the saying they want to worship him, that's what it says in verse 2. The, the Magi say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Herod might be insane, but he's not dumb. He's figuring it out. And he's realizing that this means the Messiah has been born. That's what Christ means. It means Messiah. They didn't say anything about a Messiah. The Magi didn't say anything. 
He didn't even have chief priests, scribes around him yet. He gathers them after the fact. He realizes this child that's being born, that the Magi have come to worship, is not just some other insurgent. This isn't even somebody from my own family I need to worry about. This is the Christ. This is the Christ. And if the Christ has been born, my days are numbered. There's no way I can rule if the people realize that their long-awaited Messiah has arrived. They've been waiting for him for generations, for long before I came on the scene. There is no greater threat to Herod's power than the birth of the Messiah. And he knows that's what's happening because he doesn't wait for them to explain it. He's put it together. He gets everybody together, all the experts, all the theologians, all the pastors, everybody in the room, where's Christ coming from? And that's when they answer, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, look at what Matthew does. He changes the verse. New Testament writers can do something that we can't do. We can't just go in and change Bible verses. But when God is inspiring the word, there is clearly at times some leeway. Let's, let's go back a little bit to a few slides before. Let's look at this. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little, you're, you're too small to be of any account. Look how what it changes to. But O Bethlehem, in the, by no means are you too little. Matthew is pointing here that the meaning given to this town is not based on worldly opinion. The world sees this and goes, oh, that's too small a town to count for anything. But by the time Christ is on the scene, remember, Matthew's not writing this as it happens. He's writing this looking back at the birth of Christ. He won't be called to follow Christ until Christ's ministry. He's not there for the birth. He's writing a record after the fact, and he switches it up and says, no, it's not too small. It's not too small, and that's what Micah was getting at. The world might see it as too small, out of the way, a nowhere place. God does not, because from Judah will come a ruler but notice he changes the end of this as well. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Look at how Matthew ends it. A ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So Micah does not end with chapter 5, verse 2. Micah continues forward, and there is a ton of uh, condemnation and ton of trial. But here's something that we read not long after. As soon as we get this prophecy, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old from ancient days. That's chapter 5, verse 2. Keep reading. Verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be 
their peace. This is one who is coming from of old to be a shepherd. There's a fair question to be asked here. Is Matthew changing it or are the scribes changing it? Are the scribes realizing that what, Ma- what Micah had prophesied here is coming true? And the kind of king that's on the way is not a king like Herod, not in the slightest. This is not a king that kills to get his way. This is a shepherd. The shepherd that Micah said would establish a peace and a greatness that will go to the ends of the earth. And that he would shepherd in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. You see, Matthew is not looking merely at this verse, Micah 5.2. He's looking at all that it encounters. There is one who's coming as a shepherd, to shepherd in the strength of the Lord. To shepherd is one who will bring a peace to the ends of the earth, not even just Israel, the ends of the earth, the nations will be brought in. A shepherd is coming. Now, who is the most famous shepherd to ever rule the people before Jesus? David. And where was David born? In the city of David, in Bethlehem. And so Herod is not just hearing, oh, there's a Messiah to come, but this is a Messiah like David. And no matter what I can do, David is always going to be seen as the greatest. Greatest king to ever live. Greater than Solomon. Greater than Hezekiah. Greater than Josiah. There has never been a king like David who was called by God a man after God's own heart. Not because he was perfect. He was far from it. Not because he was even particularly a good person. He definitely wasn't in parts of his life. But he was a king who routinely repented and encouraged right worship. He encouraged right worship. What did Ahaz done? He had encouraged false worship. What is Herod doing? He's encouraging self-worship through fear and intimidation. But this one to come, the greater David, is encouraging the right worship of God. And Herod's days are numbered. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. On the surface, it seems like Herod has realized, oh, Messiah is coming. It's, I just need to worship him. We'll look ahead in a moment and see what he actually does. But I want to take a moment and talk about what we learn from Bethlehem itself. Why would Jesus be born in Bethlehem? Why would God send him there? Is it just to emphasize that this is the city of David and he's coming kind of in the office of David? I don't think it is. He didn't need to be born in Bethlehem for that. He's already of the lineage of David. Matthew wrote an entire genealogy to start the book. And he begins it, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's already made the point. What's he getting at? I think it's something 
much more gentle, much more comforting. It's a message that we get from both Matthew and from Luke, that God does not come for the powerful. He does not come for them. Yes, the rich and the powerful do have access to God, sure, but it is harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a literal needle. No, he comes from the lowly. He comes for the despised. He comes for the small. There's a verse in Zechariah. Pastor John reminded the pastors of this week in his own sermon manuscript that he's preaching in Montgomery. There is the way the New Living Translation puts it. Do not despise small beginnings. There is a desire in all of us for greatness. There's a desire in all of us to matter. We want to see success. And over time, what I've seen, people who've given themselves over to some sort of success and power and money, given themselves over to the terms of greatness that this world has set, is that they end up battered, broken, bruised. They're beat up. Because one of two things happen. The vast majority of people don't make it. They don't. This is the thing we don't tell kids when they play sports. You're probably not going to make it. It's like 0.001% of kids who grow up and end up in the NBA, right? It doesn't happen. You have to be the greatest who've ever lived in that sport to make it to the NBA. You ever been to an NBA game? It's like watching a forest go to war, right? They're massive and so good at what they do. They're not going to make it. That's why when I watch college sports and I see somebody get injured, it breaks my heart a little bit. Because here's somebody who's given their life to this sport at the slimmest chance of making it, and then they blow a knee. And all of their dreams for all of their life shattered in an instant. But then what happens if you are that lucky one, that special one that makes it? How many times do we read of people who have made it to the echelons of the rich and famous and blow their lives up or commit suicide or give themselves to alcohol and drugs, who can't keep a family, who find that the success that they've gained is hollow. It's because the world has said, we want you to chase this over here, when God says, actually, I came for the small. I came for the lowly. And I don't want my people to pursue those earthly things, that earthly greatness, as if it matters. I want to transform their vision, transform their hearts to seek after me. And as we follow after Christ, we follow him into the Bethlehems of the world. We follow him into the Nazareths of the world. Yes, Jesus would go and visit Jerusalem, but he never lived there. He lived in the small towns. 
He lived among the blue collar, among the, the forgotten, among the despised. He lived in places like Capernaum and Nazareth. Not in Jerusalem, not in Rome. This calls us to reassess how we understand purpose. It calls us to reassess goals. It calls us to reassess what we use the things that God has given us. What do we use them for? For us, to build up our own greatness, to build up our own name? Or are we following Jesus into the Bethlehems, into the Nazareths of the world? Are we going to those who are forgotten and overlooked and despised? Are we going to those places and to those people who feel small? But maybe, maybe you feel small. Maybe you had big dreams and they just haven't panned out. Maybe you feel small because of a death in the family and you don't know how to handle that. Maybe you feel small because you've given yourself to a ministry or to a work and it just hasn't taken off. Maybe you feel small because you've longed for a particular kind of relationship and it's never come. Because anytime you go to work, you get beaten down. Or because you walk into a school and know, I'm one of the only Christians here. That's who Jesus came for. He came for you in that place of smallness. As we are humbled before the Lord, small by the world's estimation, we find Christ. And who is he? He is the great ruler who's come to shepherd to bring peace to the ends of the earth. You see, the kingdom of God is all about flipping things upside down so that we no longer pursue the greatness of this world, but we pursue the small things. And in pursuing those small things, we find the great king of the universe, calling people to salvation, calling people to repentance, calling people to receive hope and peace and mercy and joy and love and grace. These are the small things that are actually great things. You may not be able to put them in a bank account. They're probably not going to pay for your retirement but they are greater than anything this world has to offer because they are found only in Christ, our King. Herod was not interested in that kind of greatness. After all, he's Herod the Great. In his own name, his sons after him will take his name. That's why it gets confusing when you read the New Testament. All right, who are we talking about here? Herod died. And then I go like three chapters later, and there's another Herod. I thought Herod was dead. That's because for like five generations, Herod's ancestors will call themselves Herod to just glom on to a little bit of that greatness and use it for themselves. The Herod that Jesus would kind of go head to head with for the entirety of his ministry, Herod Antipas, was so obsessed with trying to reproduce the greatness of his grandfather, Herod the Great, that he builds great cities and calls them cities on a hill. And Jesus looks at them and goes, they're nice. But the true city on the hill, the kingdom of God, is among you. Herod 
could not see greatness as it was in front of him because he was consumed with his own greatness. And this little statement here, hey, let me know when you find him. I want to come worship too. I might be there to worship him. I might want to do that. Let me know where he is. We're not going to get to these verses in this series, so I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead and look at them. The Magi do, in fact, find the Holy Family in Bethlehem. And then they're warned not to return to Herod. When they departed, this is verse 13, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Not to worship him, to destroy him. So Joseph takes Mary and Jesus. They flee Bethlehem. They go to Egypt. And when Herod realizes he's been tricked by these magi, by these wise men, verse 16 says he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Ahaz, Manasseh, Herod, all demonically driven to seek their own greatness even if it meant the destruction of their children. We see here where an obsession with worldly greatness gets us to a murderous psychosis that destroyed, ravaged an entire town. But a pursuit of true greatness, a pursuit of Christ, leads us to what we're going to see on Christmas Eve. After listening to the king, they went their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And here's what happens. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. If you read this in the Greek, basically this is what we get. And they joyed joyfully with joyous joy. That's it. It's just Matthew trying to describe the amount of joy that the Magi feel in encountering Christ because they left worldly greatness behind and went to a manger in a tiny little town outside of Jerusalem. And when they saw the true king, they joyfully joyed with joyous joy. They were overcome. The despair of Herod, the joy of Christ, Matthew knows what he's doing when he's writing the gospel. He's presenting his listeners with a choice. Who will you follow? Will you follow in the path of Herod? Look where it got him. Or will you follow in the path of Christ? And though the path of Christ includes a cross and suffering, although the path of Christ requires to come alongside the oppressed and the despised and the forgotten, the path of Christ results not in destruction, but in resurrection. 
But he rose again to give us life. It is a path that leaves us not to eternal torment, but to eternal joy in the presence of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have a question that we must ask ourselves. Will we pursue our own greatness or we will, will we pursue smallness? Will we decrease that Christ might increase? Would we embrace in humility our smallness before a great God that we might receive all the manifold blessings that come from his hand? Salvation, hope, peace, joy, love. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to pursue Christ, that we would not pursue our own greatness or the way that the world defines greatness, but we would we pursue humility. Would we decrease that Christ might increase? And Lord, whatever you give us, would we realize that it comes from you, not from us? that any worldly greatness we might taste is only to be used by you for the good of others, for the development of the kingdom, for the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, set our minds on greater things than worldly greatness. Would we be so enamored by Christ that the things of this world are dim and uninteresting? And would we bring that good news of great joy would we bring it to the lowly, to the small places, to the people that this world would consider small? And would we show them that in Christ, they are given righteousness and glory, that true greatness comes not from pursuing our own ends, but in joyfully submitting to the ways of Christ? God, this requires transformation of heart. Help us to see the way that you want us to see. Help us to learn the lesson that Bethlehem teaches us, that you come to small places for small people. Lord, so many of us feel small because of what we've gone through, because of disappointed dreams, because of the shattering of our vision for ourselves. Would we not give in to despair would we cling to Christ who comes for people like me, like us, who the world would see as small and insignificant, that in uniting us to Christ by your Spirit, you make us rulers in the kingdom. Lord, what an amazing thing you do in Christ, all out of love. We praise you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.